Our nation is full of violence right now. Looting, protests, riots, and uh, that has put us in turmoil as a nation. I think that it has put individuals in turmoil. In fact, I think it's put most of us in turmoil. It is disconcerting to suffer while men and women struggle to carry out their ungodly ambitions around us. And so we have chaos that uh, we don't want. We don't want it for our children. We don't want it for our children's children. We don't, just don't want it in our country. We have a coronavirus that uh, we are just fed up with and uh, beyond knowing what to believe about anything anymore, at least me, uh, sorry to vent with you. Uh, we have a coming election in a few weeks, which um, has brought threats of civil war, wars and rumors of wars. And, uh, and so we are in a time that is filled with uncertainty and uh, pretty chaotic. And one of the questions that comes to mind at a time like this is, where is the comfort of God in all of this? Chaos, coronavirus, coming election. Where is the comfort of God? Well, obviously the comfort of God is found in the person of God. He is the one that we turn to, that we lean on, that we depend upon. He is the one that we're real good about giving lip service as to what we believe and who we believe in. He's not always the one we turn to on a daily basis when we get caught up in the circumstances of our lives and the chaos of our country. I want to bracket uh, this message with Isaiah chapter 40. And so we're actually going to turn there. If you, if you want to start there, you can turn there with me. I want to read a couple of verses there. I want to finish with Isaiah 40. And I want to do that because it's one of my favorite passages in terms of getting to know God. He puts his character on display. He also lets us know who, what he does, some of his actions. And it really draws us up into his sovereign majesty gives us a better feel for our understanding for his grace. And so I want to start there because God is in control. We turn to him for comfort. And even though it's disconcerting that we suffer while ungodly men and women struggle to fulfill their ungodly ambitions, God is employing them to accomplish his purposes. That's a lot to think about. That's a lot to meditate on. So we want to make sure that we know our God and that he is capable of handling that type of situation. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I'm just going to pick out some verses and, and read them for you. But again, I, I want you to note his eternal, infinite attributes and even some of how he has displayed that in this universe. I'll read verses 12 through 15. He Isaiah the prophet speaking of the Lord God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, speaking of God, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. He is infinitely great and bigger than anything we know. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord who, as his counselor has informed him? 
With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Then over to verse 23, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. He is in control. History is his story. Verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads them forth, their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now, you know how many hundreds of billions of stars and galaxies there are in our skies at night and so god gives us a little perspective there that he is not only the one who created them he sustains them and allows them to keep functioning and he is the one who has named them and leads them out each night if he wasn't there to sustain them we wouldn't have the stars to enjoy he is that great and that powerful and so isaiah takes us from the mundane to the majesty of god's and he, he elevates us out of our circumstances, and he gives us an eternal perspective by causing us to recognize who God is and what he's capable of doing. When we trust in a God like that, we are moved from cowardice to courage. We are willing to say, here am I, Lord, send me. We are willing to carry out the Great Commission. We are willing to love our enemies. We are willing to love God and love people and do justice and walk humbly with our Lord. And I think that's what we're going to see a little bit of in Daniel chapter 11. It sounds like a New Testament message, and I was paraphrasing there, but I think these elements are here in Daniel chapter 11 as we turn to the next to last chapter of Daniel 11. We're in that final fourth vision that was given to Daniel as he is the, the man of prediction in chapters 7 through 12. And in this vision, it is in chapters 10 and 11 and 12 that we get a message of comfort because we recognize and we realize that God is in control of all that is going on. He is fully aware of what is taking place and when it happens. And that brings us comfort. We draw comfort from his sovereign grace. He is the one who is acting in history to accomplish his will. He's going to act in the end times to accomplish his purposes. So let's review chapters 10, 11, and 12, uh, if you will, this final vision. We see in chapter 10, the introduction to the vision. We saw that last week, right? And we realized that earthly events correspond to angelic activity. That there's a great deal of spiritual warfare going on with good angels and bad angels trying to influence men, movements, and nations. Chapter 11 
there are two parts of this vision, verses 2 through 35 or 1 through 35. That's the part about that leads up to Antiochus Epiphanes. It covers almost 350, 400 years of Israel's history. It is future to Daniel. It is historical to us. And then in verse 36 through verse 4 of 12, we see the Antichrist, the one who Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadows. And then we close out the vision in verses 5 to 13 of chapter 12. We'll cover chapter 12 next week. But this week, we're going to look at chapter 11. Now, I want to take another look at it through a little bit different lens. This vision covers the 70 weeks of Israel, the history of Israel of the end times. And this is what we looked at back in chapter 9. If you remember even the chart, that was uh, too small to read. The first part of the vision, those 350, 400 years, they are the 69 weeks leading up to the time when Messiah is cut off to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or actually the triumphal entry but to be followed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then there is a leap, a gap, a time in between. We call it the church age. And that's the age in which we are living now. And then at the 70th week, that will follow the rapture of all the believers in Jesus Christ worldwide. Jesus will return for them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And we look forward to that blessed day. And even the dead in Christ shall rise, and we shall be reunited in the air with the Lord, and so we shall always be with him. And then we'll follow, sometime after that, the seven years of tribulation, the 70th seven, the 70th week, if you will. And those seven years are a tribulation that take up the last part of this vision. We'll look at it today in chapter 11, verses 36 to 45. So that kind of gets you set on the context of where we're at, this vision, and where it is historically and in God's timeline passage makes it clear that God is above and beyond all that is going on and that he is in charge of history, that he sets the timeline, and that should comfort us. So the first thing we're going to see in verses 1 to 35 is that our comfort starts with our confidence in our God. Now, you guys know how I am about preaching over time here, so um, I hope you brought your lunches. We've got a lot to cover. <laughs> I heard some muttering, but I didn't get the... <laughs> Verses 1 through 35, we're not going to cover it in depth. We're, gonna, we're just going to kind of uh, water ski instead of scuba dive here uh, because it is historical, and we want to look a little bit more toward the future and the Antichrist. And it's also some area that we've looked at previously but our comfort starts with our confidence in our God. And the reason we can have confidence in our God is because in these 35 verses, there are approximately 135 predictions. They're given to Daniel that are future to him that have all taken place. It's a fascinating study. If you want to look at it this week, you can go through and you can count and you can look at all the historical references there that have taken place starting with 
Persia in verses 2 and 3, 2 and then Greece and 3 and 4 and, and so on. But there are all these predictions. And, and what that tells us, since they have come true, is that the accuracy of God's word gives us comfort because it takes us to the God who is in charge of history. There's nothing happening. There's nothing going on that is not accomplishing his purposes. Even if we do suffer in the midst of it. So on the surface, it appears to us that rulers come and go. They arise. They grab power. They have authority. They're in control. But that's not true. As we saw last week, there are angels good and bad, seeking to influence them. And then above all of that is God accomplishing his purposes through his timeline. And so that's where we draw comfort is that we know God is in control. We can look at these historical references and say, yeah, they came true. Well, there's three divisions of prophecy here in uh, verses 1 through 35. We see Persia in verses 1 and 2, and, and there's a quick reference there uh, to Cyrus and to the fourth king, and that king is Xerxes. He's mentioned because he uh, continually raids and overpowers Greece, and they don't forget. And so in the next section, verses 3 and uh, 4, actually, uh, Alexander the Great arises, and the uh, first thing he does is he conquers Persia. And then in a very brief time, he conquers the known world. And then he dies at the age of 33. And then there are four of his generals that eventually control his territories. And in verses 5 through 20, the division there covers primarily the king of the north, which is the family of Seleucus, one of his generals in Syria. And then the family of Ptolemy, one of his generals that took the area down south in Egypt and northern Africa. So that's what we see in these three divisions. God's concern is for Israel and what happens to her, to her throughout this. And, and Israel is going to suffer a great deal through this entire time period. And Israel is going to be an afterthought. And Israel is going to suffer because Israel sits right in the middle between Syria and Egypt, between the king of the north and the king of the south. And so all of their, most of their battles are fought in Israel. And even as they travel back and forth, Jerusalem is captured multiple times. And it is sacked and it is ravaged and the Jews suffer because of these armies going back and forth and back and forth. God's concern is for Israel. And that's why we see this from the perspective of Israel, not only here, but then in the last week that we were given. These kingdoms fight their battles and they prepare the way for Antiochus Epiphanes. We looked at him back in chapter 8. He's given attention here in verses 21 to 35. And he's given attention because he foreshadows the Antichrist. In fact, there are many who think that uh, even the prediction of Antiochus Epiphanes plays out in the role of Antichrist. There are some scholars that uh, don't believe that uh, there is an Antichrist, and they think that the end of the chapter applies just to Antiochus Epiphanes. I think there are plenty of reasons you can show it's not. For one thing, he's not the king of the north. Uh, he's not the one that uh, fulfills all the historical references in the future. So there are a lot of ways you can look at that. 
that, but I, I believe it's uh, really solid and, and clear in terms of Scripture. Well, in 168 B.C., the big thing happened that even uh, Jesus referred to in Matthew 24, 15, when he was talking about the end times, but he was referring back to what was foreshadowed by Antiochus Epiphanes. He had gone to Egypt, and he had, he had conquered Egypt previously, the king of the south, he's the king of the north, and he had conquered most of uh, the Middle East at that time. But he goes to um, Egypt, and we're told that he is stopped there. That he is not able to do anything and that there are others that get involved. There are even the ships of Kittim that come and all this. Well, what happens is Egypt calls on Rome. The Roman Senate gets involved. They send a general with a legion of armies and a Roman galleys. They cross the Mediterranean and they meet Antiochus Epiphanes at Alexandria. And they stop him. They say, you know, we, we would like for you to turn around and go back and keep the peace, and you're not going to attack Egypt. And so he hems and he haws, and he's trying to decide what he's going to do, and if he's going to overpower the Romans and all of that. And he says, well, give me some time to think about it. And, and Popilius, the, uh, what a great name for a general, right? Popilius, he draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says, you need to decide before you step out of that circle. So he decides to keep the peace, not fight the Romans, and he goes on back. Now, that was humiliating for the one who at the time had the greatest power out of Alexander's generals, was sort of controlling the empire at that time for Greece. He was humiliated. He was frustrated. In fact, he was enraged. So on his way back, he stops in Jerusalem. And he connives with some apostate Jews, and they go in, and they offer a pig on the altar. They take the broth, and they sprinkle it around the sanctuary. They are desecrating the temple where the faithful Jews worship. They erect a statue of Zeus, and that is called the abomination of desolation. Literally, the abomination, the pagan idol, which makes desolate because no faithful Jew would go in to worship Yahweh with that pagan idol in there. That's what took place. And, and all of that is alluded to here in chapter 11. It's, it's given, we're given that kind of process that goes through. And then we're even told about those who rise up, the Maccabees. And they rise up and, and defeat Antiochus. And they cleanse the temple and restore the sacrificial system. And then thousands of Jews are slaughtered, we are told, and we're even told that this process will be a refining process. In verse 35, I'm going to read it for you. He says this, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. So there is a purging that will take place for the Jews. This time of suffering will not be wasted for them. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, the Lord could really sanctify people. He could really change people. He could make them more godly without suffering, right? But it doesn't work that way. We know, we, we know that by experience, but we know it by Scripture as well. That is one of his greatest ways to change us and transform us into the character of Christ when we trust him.
the Jews are going to suffer through the ages till the end times, we're told here. And that kind of gives us a transition to this next section, verses 36 to 45, which refers to the Antichrist, the 70th seven, the time of tribulation, if you will. But before we go there, just a quick question. Have you ever thought that God's allowance of suffering in your life, in our life, in our country's life, is a time of refining is a time of purging. If you're like me, you think you look out there and you see all these ungodly people and you think, God, you need to help them. You need to change them. But it could be that he's just pointing his finger at me and saying, you know, in the midst of this, I want you to grow. I want you to become more like Jesus. I'm going to use them to accomplish my purposes. You're going to suffer in the meantime, but I will purge and refine in the midst of it. That's what we see God doing through the ages. Well, in th verse 35 I, that I read, I read the end time, but he also uses the word appointed time. And that's the third time that he has used that in this little section. And I love that passage, especially when we think back to Isaiah 40. I like that little phrase, I mean, because that little phrase reminds us that God is in control that he is the one who has appointed times. It doesn't say when Antiochus Epiphanes is done with what he's doing or when he dies and somebody else will come along and this will happen. No, it says this will take place at the appointed time. It's the third time he says it. He wants to drive it home. If you're a student of Scripture, you know that repetition uh, of unique phrases and words are very important. They, they inform us of what's important to God. And this is the third time in six verses that he uses the term appointed time. These are not random events. God is fully aware of all that is going on. He decides what happens and he decides when it happens. Well, I've rushed through this passage because I want to look a little bit closer at the next passage, verses 36 to 45. But as I said at the start of this passage, it contains 135 predictions that were given to Daniel that are historically accurate. And that builds our comfort level with God. That comforts us because it reminds us that we can trust God with all that is going on in our lives, with all the difficulties, with all the circumstances, with all the chaos, the coronavirus, and the coming election. And even though ungodly people are pursuing ungodly ambitions, we recognize and we realize that God is employing them for his purposes. And we can trust him in the midst of this. Let's look at the next section, which takes us to the tribulation. There's a big leap here, a big gap, a church age. And now we go to the verses 36 to 45. And what we see is that our Comfort causes us to live godly lives with earnestness. What do we do in the midst of suffering? What do we do in the midst of God being in control and we're not? We live holy lives. Grace cannot be earned, but it does require effort. We are told to follow Jesus. We are told to respond to him in loving obedience. We are told to live out the mission that he has given to each one of us 
in this world, in our sphere of influence, in our local community, around the world. God has given us a mission to do. And whatever is going on, the circumstances of the world should not change that. In fact, they should motivate us, especially as we look to the end times. Knowing the end of the story and how Jesus reigns victorious should motivate us to greater obedience and greater joy in serving him now. These final verses are the 70th seven, that last week of the 70 weeks, the seven-year period known as the tribulation. It's going to follow the time of the rapture when Jesus returns for the church, and it will be ended by the second coming when Jesus returns to earth, and we'll mention that in verse 45. We get that insight as we look at the Antichrist here in verses 36 to 45. And what Daniel does is inform us about the character and the career and eventually the collapse of the Antichrist in this portion of Scripture. This man is deceptive, he is vile, he is self-serving, he is arrogant, and he is opposed to God. And that is why, through the centuries, Christians have always delighted in pointing the finger at someone that they think they know has got to be the Antichrist, living currently, contemporaneously with them. We don't know who that's going to be, and we're not given much of an angle right now. So it's all speculation. But here's what we read in verse 36. Then the king, the king is the Antichrist, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. The angel tells Daniel that this Antichrist is going to be arrogant. He's going to be self-willed. He's going to exalt himself. He's going to magnify himself above every God. He's going to blaspheme the living God, the God of gods. He's going to have success initially. And he will serve until God decrees that his time is done. We get a lot of his character here. Much of what we see here is covered in Revelation chapters 12 to 19 as well. So it's a great parallel passage or section of Scripture to study when you're reading this passage as well. We see in verse 37 that he will not be a religious person. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. He's going to set himself up as a god to be worshipped. This ambiguous phrase, no regard for women, uh, sounds like it could be multiple things. Most likely, it is a slam against the Messiah because it's written to a Hebrew audience, an Israel, uh, Israelite audience, and, and uh, that phrase could mean something like the desire of every woman in Israel at the time was to bear the Messiah. And so by saying having no regard for the woman means to have no regard for the Messiah that she would bear. And I think it fits with the context and it fits with the character of the Antichrist. Verse 38, we realize he's going to idolize the military. He instead will honor a God of fortresses. Uh, 
A God whom his fathers did not know, he'll honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He'll put a lot of faith in that. Unlike the psalmist who said, some believe in horses and chariots, but I believe in the Lord my God. He will put his faith in the military and in his own power, his own ability to run that. And then he's going to reward those who are loyal to him. He's going to give them both power and land, we read in verse 39. Not only is his character repulsive, but his career is going to include wars, and it's going to center on Palestine. His military might will be challenged. He's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel at the start of this tribulation, at the start of this seven-year period. He's going to act like uh, their great protector. And remember, he's a Western leader. He's the head of the revived Roman Empire. So he is coming from the West to save Israel, to protect Israel. And the verses in verses 40 to 43 describe a series of, of military maneuvers that are going to take place during the last few years of the tribulation. The Antichrist will face the kings from the north and the south, the east. The king of the north could be Syria, again, could be Russia, we don't know. King of the South could be Egypt, North African countries. Some of those are mentioned. The kings in the East, the army there, probably China. Let me read verses 40 to 43 just to give a synopsis of these military maneuvers. At the end time, the king of the South, meaning that last half of the tribulation, when the peace treaty will be broken with Israel, and he will go on a rampage seeking to exterminate the Jews. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, with the Antichrist, and the king of the north will storm against the Antichrist with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. So he'll be very victorious. He will also enter the beautiful land, the land of Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. So he's going to be victorious. He's actually going to go down to Egypt and follow the defeated army, and then steal the great treasures of Egypt. While he's down there, in verse 44, we read that he gets word uh, about uh, an army from the east, spoken of in Revelation 16, again, possibly China. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. So he will return to the land of Israel to take on all of these. And so what we normally call the Armageddon campaign is a series of battles and military campaigns with him fighting off all of these militaries all of these nations, all of these kingdoms. He's going to face his biggest battle back in Israel as the mightiest armies on earth converge. And the stage is set for the Antichrist to fight them in Israel. 
in verse 44. And then we read this in verse 40, 45 of his collapse. He's going to meet his match and he will suffer and he will die and he will be done with. Verse 45, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain and yet will come to his end and no one will help him. Between the seas, most likely the Mediterranean Sea on the west, the Dead Sea on the east, the holy mountain is always Jerusalem. It sits up on a mountain. And so likely he will set his headquarters there. He will have defeated, most likely defeated a lot and fought these armies down in Megiddo, the plains of Jezreel. But then this final great battle of Armageddon will take place as the armies come toward Jerusalem to take him on. And then we read this. We don't know how it's going to happen, but he will come to his end and no one will help him. We're not told there. Evidently, the armies will move to attack Jerusalem. And as they attack the Antichrist, they will look up and they will see Jesus, Son of Man, coming in the clouds with glory. And they will seek to unite and prevent his return to earth. But he will open his mouth and wipe them out. Antichrist will come to his end. We read this in Revelation 19, verses 19 to 20. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown in, alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. This is his end. He will be destroyed. It will be sudden and it will be swift and he will have no recourse. He cannot overcome Jesus Christ. And this follows up what we've seen through Daniel, doesn't it? Daniel 2, we saw the rock that would crush the statue. That was Jesus Christ, the unformed rock. In Daniel 7, we saw the court that passes judgment. In Daniel 8, the end that comes without human power. And in Daniel 9, the end that is decreed. Each of these were statements about the end of the Antichrist that would take place here at the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. We can take comfort because Jesus Christ will, cover, will conquer Antichrist and he will conquer evil. There is a plan for that. We don't look for the Antichrist, but we do look for Jesus Christ, and we look to Jesus Christ. He will come to take believers to himself before all these dark prophecies unfold on earth. We take comfort in the Lord by looking to him right now and trusting him, because we can trust him, because he is in control, because he is lining everything up according to his purposes. And according to his will, how would your life look differently if you trusted him that completely? If you focused on his majesty, if you depended on his strength and his guidance, his peace, if you looked at life with an eternal perspective, I think mentally it might give us greater clarity in our decision making. Emotionally, it would give us greater peace through the power of his presence. Physically, greater strength. 
and spiritually greater courage to walk with him and to serve him. Our comfort comes in knowing that Jesus Christ will be victorious, knowing that evil will be conquered, and knowing that God is with us right now as we trust him. I want to go back. I told you we'd bracket it with Isaiah 40, so let's go back and finish the end of that chapter. Two well-known verses, verses 30 and 31 of Isaiah 40. I want you to hear the word of the Lord, and then let's just think about how that plays out in our lives. This is what Isaiah writes. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait, wait is the same word as hope and trust. Yet those who wait for the Lord, yet those who hope in the Lord, yet those who trust in the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. These promises to Israel are principles that are true for us as well when we trust the living God. It's disconcerting that we suffer while ungodly men and women struggle to fulfill their ungodly ambitions. But we can take comfort knowing that God is employing them to achieve his purposes, but also knowing that God avails himself of us, that he gives us strength, that he causes us to rise above our circumstances on wings of eagles, that he allows us to walk and not grow weary in doing good as we obey him. So let's live in the strength and the joy of his comfort. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for laying out these times of historical importance and future prophetic importance. We thank you most of all that we cling to you, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is accomplishing your timeline and achieving your purposes.